Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, June the 7th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's just after lunchtime here on the west coast of the United States. And uh, speaking of lunchtime and food, we've done a lot of shows recently on bodies and food, particularly in terms of women. We did a show at the beginning of the week with Jesse Neeland, um, who has a new book out, Body Neutral, a revolutionary guide to overcoming body image issues. Uh, she has an interesting conception of how Women in particular, but men also need to escape their bodies. We also did a show a couple of weeks ago with a cultural commentator from Los Angeles, Elise Lonan. She has a new book out, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, in which she suggests that women need to learn, so to speak, to let it all hang out and enjoy themselves and not be uh, not, not be restricted or undermined by the rules, particularly of the Christian church. Uh, the issue of food, of course, and of our bodies and what we think about them is an endless subject. In neither of those discussions, though, did we address the issue of race and of cultural identity. My guest today, though, I think uh, will be able to discuss that particular element of it with us, although it's not just that subject. Uh, um, Mecca Jamila Sullivan is the author of a, a big hit last year, Big Girl. It's a novel. She's also an academic, a social political theorist. She teaches at Georgetown University. The book is out in paperback next week. And she's joining us from a hot Washington, D.C. Mecca, um, am I putting the novel into a box by suggesting in part it's it's not just about big girls and the issue of weight and women but about uh, african-american girls or is that an accurate description of the novel in part at least as an introduction oh i think that's absolutely an accurate description and in some ways one of the things the novel is trying to do is really show what it's like to live at the intersections of a you know kind of social culture that oppresses fatness and oppresses gender and oppresses race class comes in as well sexuality right so it's you know in some ways it's a kind of intersectional perspective on what it looks like to grow up at the margins right and sort of feeling the press of all of those social and historical structures on the body as the body is just trying to grow up and yet uh mecca the book is a celebration as well it's a book it's a big book, shall we say, a big book about a big girl full of life, full of Harlem in the 90s, a book about what it's like to be a young African-American girl in the America of the late 20th, early 21st century. So I don't want to make our conversation too miserable. In, in some ways, is it a celebration? Then? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's important to think about, and I think one of the things that fiction offers us is the chance to really sit with that kind of simultaneity of pain, of struggle, and of celebration and joy, right? You know, coming of age fiction in particular is really good at that because 
as we're coming of age, we're sort of navigating, you know, the emotional complexity of our lives and again, those social complexities, right? And, you know, it's not unusual for, you know, a child or a teenager to experience a kind of barrage of seemingly contradictory emotions at the same time, or at least in sort of quick succession. And so my hope is that readers of Big Girl really see Malaya travel through, Malaya is the main character of the novel. We see her sort of travel through that social landscape and we see how it impacts her inner world. Perhaps most importantly, we see how she survives it. And joy, celebration, art, music, food, pleasure, right? All of these become sort of mechanisms that help her to survive the social structures that she's growing up in. So tell us about the main character in the book, uh, Malaya uh, Clondon, who hated it when her mother dragged her to a, a Weight Watchers meeting in Harlem. Uh, what, what kind of girl is she? How old is she in the book? And what does she look like? Sure. So when we meet her, she's eight. Her name is Malaya. When we meet her, she's eight. And in fact, we meet her at a Weight Watchers meeting, right? So she's eight years old. Her family has just moved to Harlem from the Lower East Side of New York City. So there's a bit of a, it's a family in transition, in flux. They've just purchased a brownstone, right? And it's, you know, the very late 1980s. The, her parents are sort of imagining that this is gonna be the start of a very rich kind of community life for her. It's also a kind of moment of class mobility, right? They're newly homeowners. And this sort of is a momentous occasion for the family, for her parents specifically. At the same time, her mother decides that it's really time to get her weight under her control, right? That the mother has sort of, you know, is going through her own weight issues and has sort of battled and internalized fat phobia all her life. And so when we meet Malaya, we see this very kind of opposition that we're talking about or the kind of complexity that we're talking about. She's in this Weight Watchers meeting. She's sort of navigating all of these women and their sort of feelings of shame, how they're bonding over their shame around their bodies. And yet we also see her imagination. She's incredibly sort of um, imaginative, creative, and she really has, especially as a young girl, she's got this very quick recourse to imagination as a means of escape, right? So she's sort of imagining the foods that these women are talking about so shamefully. And of course, she imagines them in vibrant color, right? She, you know, she's a, a, a visual artist. And so we see her sort of thinking about how drawing and painting and, and, you know, collage can sort of help her navigate the external pressures that are placed on her from the outside world. And really, as she grows up, we see her sort of grow into a teenager. Her sexuality, as is the case for most teenagers or many teenagers, her sexuality sort of becomes center stage there. And we see her really, you know, sort of noticing some interesting parallels between the forbidden desires of the body when it comes to food and forbidden desires of the body when it comes to the erotic and sexuality. And of course, her teenage rebellion in many ways is about sort of de determining that it's, it's, it's up to her to kind of define her life for herself, right? And kind of rejecting, you know, those inherited norms and standards and ideologies, which again, is very much a coming of age sort of story for Malaya that takes place sort of through her control over her body. You're a professor of literature as well at Georgetown, so you know this stuff a million times better than I do. I remember when we studied many years ago, when I studied Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, you know, one of the first, so to speak, novels or, or fictional books in, in the Western canon. The, the Fat Friar was presented in, in incredibly jovial, colorful mm. terms. We don't do that anymore, do we, Mecca? What's changed over the last 700 years or 800 years when it comes in particularly in literary terms to representing big girls and big boys? You know, I, I would have to kind of go back to that premise, right? And maybe sort of, I think we are, there's more for us to kind of trouble there. 
On a certain level, first of all, it's very interesting. I'm, you know, excited that we could talk about Chaucer. This Chaucer doesn't come up often in my conversations about Big Girl, so I think that's cool. Um, on so yes, it, it is true. I think that the way we understand or the way the fat body is depicted in, you know, let's say English literature, right, or sort of literatures in English, right, um, certainly, right, changes over to, over generations, and especially I think in the last, you know, maybe let's say toward the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century. I think we do, there's a kind of more intentional um, sort of concentrated effort to really think about how fatness is represented. But the notion of fatness as a kind of, a kind of marker of a joviality, of a kind of affability, accessibility, availability, that is pervasive, especially when we talk about black women, right? Sort of representations of black women you know, Black feminist literature and Black feminist theory has spent a lot of time thinking this through. In some ways, Black women are often sort of written into a kind of completely impossible bind of being, on the one hand, angry, harsh, you know, sort of, um, uh, sort of uber critical, and also possibly stoic and not emotional at all. And on the other end, the mammy stereotype, right? A sort of constantly nurturing, nourishing, jovial, affable, constantly welcoming um, presence, especially for white people and white children. So the idea of a black woman character who is emotionally complex, right? Whose body is complex, but also whose inner world is complex, who is sometimes fun and happy and, you know, enjoying love, right? And, and enjoying laughter and at other times, is angry and critical, and for whom that the range of emotion is sort of directed inward, right? Inward to herself and to her community, as opposed to as a way of sort of comforting or placating expectations of dominant culture and, and white society, right? That's a really important thing that literature can do. And that's what I'm trying, that's one of the things I'm trying to do in Big Girl, right? Is show the, the complexity of inner lives of black women and girls and black queer people. So, you know, the Fat Friar is an interesting example, right? In some ways, that image is not that far off from some of the ways in which we understand the quote unquote mammy as being constantly accessible, available, you know, fat jokes, right? I mean, there's a correlation there that I think is pervasive, especially when it comes to black women and how they're depicted, how we're depicted. Uh, we've done some shows on the representation in Hollywood of the first, the, the, the first uh, black women were presented as jovial in in the early Hollywood uh, movies uh, with uh, 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 the critic, uh, I've forgotten her, you, you all remember her first name. What, her last name is Washington. Um, Mary Helen Washington. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, we, we, we dealt with that. I wonder in an odd way whether, uh, so to speak, Mecca, you're playing here the, the Audrey Lord card. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you're a big fan of hers. We've done it's my favorite card to play. So. Uh, she's a good card to play in the sense that she is the very sort of personification of that complexity that you're arguing for. She's not, she doesn't fit into any kind of stereotype. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And not only that, she also gives us really kind of robust and useful language for talking about that complexity, right? Lord is fascinating because you know, many, I think many, you know, kind of popular, you know, 2023 moment, many people sort of understand Lord as a Black feminist poet um, and someone who has, you know, just hundreds of tremendously useful theoretical concepts that can be distilled into a couple of sentences, right? I mean, Lord is highly memeable. 
Um, and it's for a reason. It's because of her attention to language. When we really sit with her work, what we see is that over the course of her body of work, she's developing a theory of intersectionality, right? Again, this sort of complex set of relationships between race, gender, class, sexuality, and also ability and disability and embodiment, right? And this is something that she continues to invoke in her descriptions of her own life, right? And her descriptions of her identity um, and who she is. So not only is she living this kind of intersectional life, but she's giving us language for it. And importantly, Lord, who, you know, a lot of the work of hers that we kind of, that circulates most popularly now is written in the 70s and 80s. Um, but even in that time, Lord is claiming fatness, right? Like fatness is on her list. She's a fat, black, lesbian, poet, cancer survivor. You know, some, there's a point in her, her sort of first memoir-like work where she refers to herself as fat, black, half blind and ambidextrous, right? So not only is she sort of living intersectionally, but she's giving us language and especially language that includes fatness, right? And how we think about power and its relationships to the body. Yeah, and of course, she's also giving us anger. We did a show, uh, again, I apologize for forgetting the name of the author, but it's a, it, it was a book about rage. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, she, of course, is a big fan of Lord. Yeah. How does Lord, in, in that sense, legitimize rage and make it accessible? And in, in the context of a, of a young girl like Malaya, who's growing mm -hmm. up, who needs to, I guess, learn or understand when you should and shouldn't be angry. Well, and so, yes, I mean, I think this is another place where maybe we can kind of, you know, dig a bit deeper into the, the, the framing, right? Maybe what she needs to do is unlearn when she should and shouldn't be angry, right? And sort of listen to herself. And in some ways, you know, this is one of the, the, the themes or one of the messages. Certainly, this is a central component of Malaya's experience, right? Is that she grows up sort of listening intently to the people around her, what they say, but also what they do, sort of paying attention and gathering her cues externally. I think that's the case for most children. That's how children learn. And yet for somebody like Malaya, there's a sense of urgency because her family and you know her extended family and at a certain point authorities at school are all sort of urgently concerned about her weight. Um, so she grows up feeling that it's, a, it's literally life or death for her. If she doesn't get the rules right, it's life or death for her. And perhaps even as importantly, it's a kind of, there's a, a major social risk for her family, right? That her family, her parents will be looked at as failures if she doesn't listen to the rules and, and abide by them. And so in some ways, what she has to do is unlearn some of that, right? And let herself be angry when she's angry, let herself be joyful when she's joyful, let herself be desirous when she's desirous, right? Um, and unlearning that messaging is a big part of sort of the task in front of her in this novel. I wonder in a, in a, in a broader cultural sense, um, Mecca, whether America, so to speak, was founded on anti-fat principles by mm -hmm. the Calvinists, of course, who preached self-control, uh, the Protestant ethic, which at least according to Weber resulted in the appearance of American capitalism of self-control as a consequence of a kind of cult, uh, spiritual crisis in the church. Um, and of course, America was founded by whites. And you don't need me to tell you about the history of whites and blacks and slavery. How does it all fit together uh, in terms of the body and slavery and the foundations of the American Republic? Uh, is there, is, is, is fatness or a critique of fatness 
and the body is it is it central in 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 a kind of cultural political analysis of what happened in America? Absolutely. First of all, what a big question. Yes, absolutely. I think a critique of fatness is central, partly because of this notion that we're talking about in terms of intersectionality. And I hate to sort of keep bringing it. I don't really. That word. It's a it's a, it's a controversial yeah. word. Some people don't like it. What do you mean by that word? Mary? Well, so what I mean by it, you know, it's sort of it's a term that's coined by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 to refer to the specific experience of sort of the in the dual impacts of race and gender on black women. That's how Crenshaw is, is sort of using the term when she first coins it. And over the next few years, Crenshaw herself and other theorists sort of nuance it and they, they begin to bring in gender, I'm sorry, sexuality and class into that matrix, right? Sort of thinking about what it means to sort of live under multiple sort of structures of power, right? Multiply marginalized in ways that end up being unique. It's not the sum total of race plus gender plus sexuality, for example. It creates a unique location from which one has to live and, you know, sort of within which one has to survive. Um, in my mind, right, literature is uniquely positioned to kind of tell that story, right? Because it is not a sort of like additive mathematical um, sort of uh, formulation, right? What it is, is it's, it's a language that helps us to define and better understand particular experiences of power. What better way to do that than through storytelling and through narrative? So for Malaya, you know, growing up in this sort of intersectional experience, it, it helps, it, it sort of forces her to kind of come to terms with, you know, an America that, as you've said, is founded on multiple forms of injustice, right? And, you know, she comes to see how those multiple forms of injustice begin to inform or come to inform her life by doing a kind of personal history, a kind of deep dive into the history of her own family. So we see how, for example, you know, her grandmother also has this deeply internalized body shame, which for her is not only about a fat phobia, but it's also about an idea of what kind of woman one should be that's absolutely informed by race and by blackness, right? Sort of what, what kinds of luxuries do black women have in terms of how they fully express themselves in their body? Class too is a factor, right? That in order to you know, imagine a family life for her, you know, kind of her future offspring where the family is doing well, she has to imagine a particular kind of sort of middle class or class aspirational womanhood, which also for her means thinness. So, you know, telling the story of a fat black queer girl tells us so much more than the story of that one fat black queer girl. It tells us a story about America and perhaps even sort of Western, you know, society or culture more broadly, how these structures of oppression impact each and every one of our lives really, right, in different ways. And I think Malaya is a great sort of figure through which to tell that story. Story of America, but also the story of the paradox of America, as you've suggested, America was founded on, so to speak, anti-fatness principles. And yet wherever you go in America, uh, there are, very troubling manifestations of obesity on the streets, in the schools, in people's homes, in how they eat, in how they don't exercise. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a racial element here, but there's a broader context of Americans not being able, for better or worse, to live up to the principles of the republic and of hmm. somehow struggling to even acknowledge that or make sense of it. How would you more broadly analyze the epidemic of obesity in a republic founded against fatness? 
So first I wanna go back to that idea of America as being founded on anti-fat principles. I think that is absolutely true. I think, however, we get there by also understanding how America is founded on anti-Black principles, anti-Native or Indigenous principles, anti-woman principles, anti-queer principles, anti-trans principles, right? This notion that there's a, a single particular way to have, to be successful at, at having a body, right? And That's to, a lot of people, uh, Mecca. So is it white men uh, uh, that discriminating well, against everybody else? You know, Audre Lorde, who we've already invoked, she has this idea of the mythical norm, right? This is the kind of straight, able-bodied, you know, sort of, um, you know, not, not aging or not yet aged, right? You know, sort of heterosexual, sort of cis male body. This is, of course, updating Lord's language, right? But, you know, it's, it's a mythical norm, not because those people don't exist, but the fact, the notion that they, they, that they should be sort of considered the norm, right, relies on several myths about power. And if we were really thinking about sort of the majority of people, the majority of people on the planet absolutely fall outside that norm. And yet, you know, this is how, how power sort of coalesces, especially in the U.S., right, is around this sort of mythical normative ideal. So given that, then yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a character like Malaya helps us to see, you know, again, what it is to grow up sort of under the thumb of a, of a norm like that. But truly Malaya is not the only person, right? Most of us can sort of look at that norm and recognize that it doesn't reflect our experience. To your point about what is referred to as the obesity epidemic, right? You know, there are, there are plenty of people who have done research on medical fat phobia and who are sort of better trained, I think, to kind of speak to how that functions and how it impacts society. But one of the things that I, you know, kind of want to point out here is that the notion that quote unquote obesity is an epidemic, in some ways that even that sort of framing, right, there's an element of fat phobia kind of baked into it. First of all, the idea of quote unquote obesity as a kind of a neutral term, right? One that isn't steeped in a history of kind of, you know, sort of medical, um, a history of medical decisions, let's say, right? Sort of how to study the body, how to determine sort of what elements of weight fluctuation are, you know, are quote unquote natural, right? To a, a given body versus which are moral and the result of individual choices that we can, that we should all be making. The notion that one's weight is A, under one's control and B, sort of a, a, an arbiter or a kind of delimiter of their value or their worth, right? All of that is baked into this notion of the obesity epidemic. So I think it's really important to kind of push back a little bit, you know, on, on what that means. When we walk around and we see people, you know, in the street, as you mentioned, who, you know, sort of represent a range of bodies, right? What is it that that brings us to, a, first of all, assume that all those bodies are unhealthy, um, also to assume that those bodies owe us health, right? That like that being unhealthy is, is something that somehow sort of, again, under their control um, and is a kind of signifier of a moral failure. All of that is part of the, that, those kind of like foundational. Uh, yeah, sort of, and of course, they reflect increasingly in America of white or and maybe not so much white, coastal, thin coastal elites, hmm. and fat people in the middle, poor fat people, the, 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 the socioeconomic division uh, when it comes to food. Um, i got to be a little careful here, uh, Mecca, when it comes to race and physiology, but in your reading, in your view, it may, it may not be an, an area of expertise for you, uh, what's the impact 
physiologically on the black body of slavery? And has that made black people, Amer African-Americans, and particularly African-American women, more vulnerable to obesity? So I can't speak to that question about sort of the Im impact of race, of, of race and racism, and especially enslavement on Black Americans. It sounds like this question is sort of getting to a discussion of epigenetics, which I think is really interesting. There's some really interesting and exciting research being done, you know, in social sciences and humanities, and even you know, sort of in the quote-unquote hard sciences in that area. Um, I think another part of this conversation is the kind of historical element. And Sabina Strings, right, is a fantastic scholar who does really important work on the connections between enslavement and not fatness, but fat phobia, right? The conversation we have around fatness, again, sort of shaping this notion of obesity and how enslavement is a major sort of figure, um, you know, in, in help in sort of bringing us to this point where we're stigmatizing fatness in the way that we are. I, you know, when I think about a character like Malaya, I think in some ways part of what I'm hoping she does is help bring us beyond the, the conversation about sort of how did we, you know, how did we get here, right? Her experiences with doctors show us that, you know, whatever the, the sort of prevailing logic is around how Black women should eat or should feel in their bodies, it doesn't hold for her. There's a kind of cultural misconception, for example, that fat phobia doesn't exist in Black communities, right? Uh, you know, the notion of, you know, Black men like women with some meat on their bones, right? This is, of course, a very kind of like heteronormative framing, which doesn't fit for Malaya. And also, it, it ends up just not being the, the, the truth in a lot of Black women's experiences, right? Because in American culture, as you pointed out, thinness is, you know, sort of connotes success, connotes femininity, womanhood, and all these things. And so, you know, Black culture in some ways is often a microcosm of dominant American culture. It goes back to the Du Boisian idea of double consciousness, right? Like, whatever is happening within Black communities, there's also always a constant awareness of what's happening in white communities. And it's really, you know, there's, there's no way to make the argument that there's no seepage, right? That some of those logics, especially logics about what brings power, those will always seep in. And certainly that's what Malaya is dealing with in this book. Yeah, we did a show about the doubleness, if you like, of Du Bois uh, on the First World War earlier this week. Oh, wow. The New York Times review of your book um, suggested that, um, uh, the, the book suggests that black women suffer twice at the hands of capitalism. We've talked a lot about that, but mm -hmm. also, and I'm quoting from the review, from the complicity of those in our own homes and communities. Is there a problem with parents, both inside and outside the African community, manifesting their love or trying mm -hmm. to manifest their love by giving their kids too much to eat, by mm -hmm. thinking, particularly in, in upwardly mobile families like Malaya's, that as you go up in the world, as you have a bit more money, one way to manifest your love for children is by giving them more to eat. Hmm. I don't think so. Um, it's funny. I thought where we were going to head with that is sort of, is there a problem with parents, you know, within or outside of the Black community, you know, sort of uh, trying to control their children's bodies by... by you can go there as well. You don't have to... You don't have to it. I was like, you go, go that direction too. I think that to me, to my mind, that's 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 more of an issue, right? Is sort of the inheriting of diet culture at a very young age. I mean, I have to say, as I've been traveling the country, talking to folks about this book, the number of people who I've met with or who've emailed me just telling their own story about 
how they too were, you know, put on Weight Watchers at a very young age, or how they watched their mother diet and, you know, sort of internalized even silently, right, that this is what they were supposed to be doing. Obviously, there's a, you know, tremendous sort of culture of uh, disordered eating, right? And, you know, and of course, diet culture, which there's no language for when Malaya is growing up, right? There's no sort of pervasive popular language for any of these things. And yet she's sort of living through them, right? And she's having to kind of create her way out of it. She's having to sort of, you know, find a way for herself to kind of get through this culture that's passed down, yes, you know, in many ways, but also through her parents, right? And especially her mother, and as I said, her grandmother. The class component that you're mentioning, I think, is also really important. Um, the idea that, you know, that food is one way that we express love for sure, but also this notion of sort of um, abundance, right, being uh, something that we can most readily access maybe through food, right? But I don't think that's, that in and of itself is not necessarily a problem, right? We all need to eat. We all need to eat to survive. And we also all, or many of us at least, eat for pleasure. That in itself is not the issue, right? I think what happens is, you know, one of the logics of diet culture is that by um, imposing a kind of expectation of restriction, it changes the meanings of food. And that leads to disordered eating of all kinds, right? In terms of hyper restriction, also, you know, compulsion, right? All of these other sort of disordered ways of engaging with food. I do think those are inherited and passed down. But no, I wouldn't say that sort of showing love through food is necessarily a kind of problem within Black communities. Is technology ultimately, uh, Mecca, going to fix all this? There's increasingly sophisticated surgery, which allows uh, for fat to literally be cut out of people, mm -hmm. for the for body to be re-sculpted. And then, of course, now there's an explosion of new drugs, which allow mm -hmm. people to control their weight. Is this a solution or is this going to only compound many of the problems that we've already been discussing? So I hesitate, I hesitate, no, technology is not going to solve the problem. So that's, that's an easy one for me, right? Um, I hesitate to say that these interventions necessarily compound the problem um, because I, you know, I, part of my sort of ethos as a queer black feminist is that I don't purport to have knowledge about anyone else's body, right? And I, you know, I think this is one of the ways in which we need to be, you know, we need to claim sovereignty over our bodies. And so I, you know, it's not my business and I'm not really interested, honestly, in sort of making prescriptions or recommendations around what anyone else does with their body. At the same time, I do think that, you know, sort of widespread conversations about some of these, 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 technological, scientific, medical interventions, especially when they are meant like sort of explicitly and strictly to, to induce weight loss, right? That that does contribute to a culture of fat phobia, again, a culture of disordered relationships with food, um, a really dangerous sort of cultural stigmatization of black bodies, of bodies of color, and you know, bodies that fall outside of that norm. I do think that kind of gets us into a deeper hole in some ways. Um, that I don't think, yeah, I don't think technology is really going to be our way out. Honestly, I think, probably not surprising, as a reader, a writer, a scholar, I think that language is is, is helpful. I think language can help us. I think literature can help us. Um, and I, I especially think, you know, when we see people who are in positions of power and authority in the sciences and in medicine, start to think differently about how they treat fat, Black, queer bodies, for example, 
you know, perhaps maybe through encountering somebody's story, right? That sort of helps them think a little bit differently. Then I think maybe we have some hope. Yeah, and in our age of chat GPT, where we're, so to speak, outsourcing our language to machines, right. I'm expecting a, a, a flood of techno-dystopia novels and books about uh, a future yes. uh, in which you're describing. Um, you described yourself as a queer Black feminist. How autobiographical is this book? So I often say it's a fiction, but it's a fiction close to my heart, right? I had, you know, many sort of very similar experiences to the one Malai, the ones Malaya has in this novel. And yet, you know, because I, I came to this novel in some ways as a young Black girl, you know, sort of newly discovering Black feminist literature, right? Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, uh, Antozaki Shange, Jamaica Kincaid. I discovered these writers at a very young age. And I discovered them around the time that I was having some of these experiences that Malaya is having. And you grew up in Harlem as well, isn't it? I sure did, yeah. So there are a lot, there are plenty of kind of biographical overlaps and similarities. Um, one main difference, though, is I think Malaya is actually, you know, she's a bit kind of quicker than I was to, to reach that point of, you know, again, self-definition. Um, you know, sort of she's a, she's a little bit more assertive about rejecting some of these internalized and inherited ideas about what her body means in the world. Um, I had a tremendous amount of fun writing this character, you know, and in some ways I think that's, it speaks to the the extent to which she's different from me. Like I had to get to know her, you know. I think you would have had as much fun if you were writing her when you were younger then. No. Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, living something and writing about it are two very different experiences, right? And I think that's, in some ways, that's why we write is to kind of, um, you know, maybe metabolize some experiences that, that we've had and then to create meaning for them such that they might be useful for other people. That in and of itself is enjoyable for me. Well, this, uh, this conversation is making me hungry, Mecca. I don't know. Good. Get some French fries. I highly recommend. Yeah, I don't know whether I should be confessing that. But let's end um, on a positive note. Uh, June is your month as a queer Black feminist. The, oh, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Juneteenth is a few days mm -hmm. away. Uh, we actually did, we've done a number of shows on Pride. We did one um, with English uh, gay activist Paul Burston, We Can Be Heroes. Yeah a survivor's story, a narrative of empowerment of what to do. Let's end on a positive note. What, what's the positive message in Big Girl? What would you like people to get from it in terms of empowerment, in terms of realizing both Pride and Juneteenth and all the other areas that you're arguing for in American culture, making it a better country, a less perhaps anti-fat country? Sure. Well, you know, I think one of the places where the sort of mission of Pride and the mission of Juneteenth as sort of national celebrations intersect is on this notion of freedom, right? Sort of what it means to fully inhabit a free life. And absolutely, this is one of the things that Malaya strives to do, right? Is sort of carve out spaces for freedom, bodily freedom, but also sort of psychic, emotional freedom, right? Within the context of her family. And then as she grows up, you know, in the broader world. My hope is that other, you know, that readers sort of take to heart what Malaya learns, which is that she has every right to feel as free as she possibly can to make decisions on behalf of her freedom and to really question and reject these structures of racism, you know, sort of classism, heterosexism, all of these sort of intersecting structures that we've been talking about, that she gets to sort of make a decision to try her best not to internalize them so that she can live as freely as possible.